Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. Um, welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you could open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. We're continuing our series we're calling King of Kings, an exposition through this book of 2 Samuel, and we are in the third chapter. And if you've been around for a while, I don't know if you've noticed, but 2 Samuel is a little different than 1 Samuel. It's almost like 1 Samuel got taken up a notch in every way. It's more extreme in the highs and in the lows. And in a sense, it's more muddy, I guess you could say. That's kind of how I think about it. It's muddier in that the situations are more difficult. It's harder to understand some of the passages. And really, it's, it's more difficult to draw a line between the good guys and the bad guys in 2 Samuel, if you want to think about things that way. Because in 2 Samuel, what we see is a lot of the guys that we think are the good guys, a lot of the guys that we think are on the right side, end up doing some of the worst things. But that's why this book is so necessary, even though I think it's going to be a little difficult to get through. Even though it's heavy, it can really help us understand our own hearts better. And David, the main protagonist of this story, David in particular, I think, is so important. He's special. In fact, one preacher I heard recently, he said this about David. He said, at his best, David gives us unique insight into the heart of Jesus, who is the son of David. And even at his worst, David, more than anyone, really shows us how much we all truly need Jesus. That's why we call the book or the series, excuse me, King of Kings, because even though David is the king, even though it's his kingdom, in a sense, really, it's all pointing to David's king. David's the king, sure, but Jesus is the king of kings. So let's read the text. We're in 2 Samuel 3. We're going to finish the second half of this chapter, starting in verse 22. Let me read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. 2 Samuel 3, verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab. And upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? 
Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not uh, fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to more, uh, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before your holy word. We pray that you would speak to us. And it's not so much, God, that you don't speak through your word. God, your word is living and active. It always is. It's more that we are more blind than we would care to admit, more deaf, that our hearts are more hardened. It's just hard for us sometimes to understand or to listen or to take in what your word has to say, especially difficult books like this. And I pray for myself. God, I just pray that you would help us to really grasp the message that you have for us. God, and I pray that you would use this word, God, to sharpen us, to convict us, to encourage us, ultimately to build us up. God, we know that your word can do this, that it can do something that nothing else can do. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts. And most of all, God, especially as we're in 2 Samuel, God, I pray that you would glorify your son who is the true king. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. The novel, A Separate Peace, you might have read it in high school or something. A Separate Peace, it tells the story of a young man named Gene Forrester. He's a student at the prestigious Devon School, a boarding school in New Hampshire. And this is important, but a separate piece takes place during the darker days of World War II. In fact, for Gene and his class, this is their last year of peace, hence the title, before they are sent off to war to kill or to be killed. Now, during the summer of 42, Gene becomes close friends, best friends really, with another student named Phineas, and everyone calls him Finney. And Finney has this effortless talent. He's charming. He gets along with everybody. He's super good at sports, very athletic. He's the kind of person who makes everything seem easy. And Gene, even though he doesn't want to feel this way, he starts to find himself jealous, feeling envious of his friend and all of his gifts. And this leads him to invent this sort of one-sided competition between the two of them in his own mind. Everything that they do, he tries to one-up Finney in some way. He feels inferior, uh, inferior, excuse me. Finney's better at most things, but at least I got a higher grade on this test. They're friends, but Gene's resentment keeps building and building until the climactic moment. One day, they climb this tree on campus. It's near a river, and they climb this tall tree, and it's something that Finney loved to do. He loved to do daring, dangerous things. They climb up, and they're going to jump off into the river. And right before Finney jumps off, which usually is super easy for him to do, Gene, for some reason, shakes the branch 
and it messes up Finney's balance. And instead of falling into the river, he falls onto the bank beneath and he shatters his leg and he is permanently crippled. Now, why do I bring up this story? Okay, what's the point? Let me ask you a question, okay? We've read the text. We read 2 Samuel chapter 3, the second half. What do you think this passage is about? If you were paying attention, what do you think that this passage we just read, what do you think it's about? What's the point? If you had to take a stab at it, I admit pun intended, if you had to take a stab at it, what is this text trying to communicate to us? Is it about revenge? You see that in there? Joab, he avenges his brother. He kills the man that killed Asahel. Or is it about justice? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. Why not a stomach for a stomach? Sounds about right. Surely Abner deserved what happened. Or is it about how to treat your enemies, the right and the wrong way? Or is it about how to mourn for the fallen? Or is it about David's weakness, that he doesn't handle things right? Or is it about David's political shrewdness, that he handles things perfectly? Or is it about something else? See, the truth is this passage actually touches on all these things in different ways. There's a lot going on in here, but when you consider the context, when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, you begin to see that it's not primarily about any of those things I just mentioned. Primarily, when you sit with this text, when you think about it in its context, primarily this text is actually about peace. It's about peace. Because last week we looked at the first half of chapter 3, and it began with war. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. But then, as we got to the end of the passage we looked at last week, the first half of 2 Samuel 3, if you look at verse 21, which leads into our passage today, 2 Samuel 3, verse 21 Look at what it says. And Abner said to David, I will arise and I will go and I will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. Okay, they make a treaty. So David sent Abner away and he went in what? He went in peace. Peace. See, in verse 21, the war technically ends, but what we see this week and what we're getting into right now is a scenario where even though the war is technically over, the bloodshed isn't. The hatred isn't. The threats to peace are ever present. We start with peace, but we see how difficult a thing it is to maintain that peace. And maybe you ask, okay, what does this have to do with me or with anything? Well, let me ask you. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you at all. Have you ever turned on the news or scrolled through your Twitter feed or something or sat in your car imbibing talk radio and felt like the world around you was on the verge of collapse? You're hearing about all the terrible things that are going on all around us. See, in our day and age, none of the world's problems are ever out of sight. And what that means is none of the world's problems are ever really out of mind. We're constantly thinking about it. We're constantly hearing about it. Hostile foreign nations, corrupt politicians, predators online, greedy corporations, people that hate you and everything that you stand for. We hear about it constantly. Or how about this? Do you have personal or interpersonal, excuse me, 
problems? Do you have conflict with people in your life? You know, can't stop fighting with your spouse about the same things over and over. Or maybe there's a person at work where their very existence just makes your blood boil. Or maybe it's someone that you had a falling out with in the past, someone from school, maybe from your old church, maybe even from this church, which might be your old church in the future. And you're so scared that you might run into them at Kroger because just the very sight of them makes that pit form in your stomach. And then what about everything that's in here? I mean, forget the things that are out there. Even forget the horizontal problems that we have with the people around us. How about just the things that plague us when we're by ourselves? Our anxieties, our fears, our doubts, our jealousies, even. They keep our minds racing. They keep us tossing and turning at night. We can't shut it off. See, the reason why I started the way I started The lesson of a separate peace is that you can be a thousand miles away from war. You can technically be safe. And yet, what we come to understand, what we realize if we wait long enough, is that even though you're so far away, the war's not out there. The war's in here. What hope is there for peace? Who doesn't want peace in this room? Inner peace interpersonal peace, world peace. What hope is there, though, when we live in a fallen world like the one that we live in, when we have the complex lives that we do, when our hearts are constantly racing? Is there hope for real peace? This passage, even though it seems maybe opaque at first, this passage would argue, though it's not easy, absolutely. Here's the outline for today. What shakes peace, what breaks peace, there's kind of a rhyme here going on in case you didn't notice, what makes peace. I did go to seminary, and that's what we learned. What shakes peace, what breaks peace, what makes peace. First of all, what shakes peace, what shakes peace. We got to understand that peace is fragile and why it is so fragile. Look at the text, verse 22. Let's just get into it. Verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had been sent away and he had gone in peace. So Abner, okay, he has just left and the text reiterates he had gone in peace. David and Abner have made peace. However, there is someone who has not entered into the scene yet. It's Joab. Joab, the commander of David's army. He is the rival to Abner in two kingdoms. And they miss each other like ships in the night. And there are several reasons why the text highlights this arrival. One, Joab has been fighting against Abner all this time. They have been leading their respective armies in this civil war. They are the leaders of the military. They're officially enemies. But it's not just that. Two, Joab has a personal issue with Abner. And it was brought up in the text twice Abner killed his brother, Asahel. He didn't necessarily mean to. We talked about this a little while ago, but he did do it. So yes, okay, there is peace in verse 21. And we did touch on the power of grace that David would welcome Abner, his enemy, with a feast. But now Joab's back. And we're going to see how shaky this peace really is. Verse 23, when Joab and all the army all the army, all these fighters that were with him came. It was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he has let him go and he has gone in peace. 
Abner showed up and it's all good. And this is basically what happened. Sure, there are reasons unmentioned here. Abner did deliver all of Israel to David's uh, power, an important little detail. But basically, this is what happened. Abner showed up, their greatest enemy, and David did nothing. Joab hears this word resounding in his ears, peace. Abner and peace, it should be like oil and water, and yet somehow... They have mixed. Now, let's press the pause button real quick. I just want to stop here for one second. Peace. We keep hearing that word. I've talked about it a lot. What does it mean? See, peace is one of those words where maybe you, you kind of know when you see it, or maybe you know it better by knowing what it's not. It's not a war or something like that. But really, what does it mean to have peace or be at peace? I looked it up online, various dictionaries. They define it differently. Tranquility. Freedom from disturbance, a state in which war has ended. But remember, okay, that's the English word peace. This is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was written not in English originally, but in Hebrew. Okay, mostly Hebrew, a little Aramaic, but that is neither here nor there. Hebrew, and if there's one Hebrew word that maybe you know, out of all the Hebrew words that there are to know, it's the Hebrew word for peace, probably. Do you know what it is? Shalom. It's the word shalom. Even today in Israel, if you go, shalom is used as a greeting. Kind of how we say peace out or something. They say shalom when they say hello or goodbye. And while you never want to read too much into the dictionary definition of a word, right? Because context is always important. It always has to be taken into account. We have to understand that to the Hebrew mind, shalom carries with it a greater weight than maybe our English word peace does. Shalom is more than just tranquility or freedom from disturbance or a state in which war has ended. Shalom, when you study the word in the Old Testament, it really means wholeness or wellness. You could say that shalom is things the way they are supposed to be. Things the way that God intended originally. So shalom vertically, it's humanity in relationship, reconciled relationship with God. Shalom horizontally is people living in perfect harmony with one another, no conflict, no fighting. And shalom individually is you without care or concern at all. So all this to say, there's only two parts of the Bible, really, where you see shalom in perfect fullness. You see it at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And then you see it at the very end when God makes all things new in heaven and on earth. Okay, now that was a little aside, but you got to understand, and the reason why I brought this up, all this to say is, it's interesting that chapter 3 in 2 Samuel would mention Shalom again and again and again and again. It's not saying that David achieved perfect Shalom, not at all. But what it is suggesting, and we might miss this, but what it is suggesting is that something significant happened between David and Abner. That David not only was able to unify the kingdom by accepting Abner's treaty, not only did he end the war between his house and Saul's house by welcoming Abner with a feast, but it also points to the underlying reality that something happened between Abner and David personally. Something happened in David's heart. And this hospitality, this grace shown in David truly welcoming Abner is what allowed this peace, this shalom to bud and to grow. David was able to let some things go and it achieved a tenuous peace. We're pointed to the even deeper reality that to a certain extent, David ate the cost. 
whatever bitterness was there, whatever anger, he let it go. And because he pursued peace for a fragile moment, there is peace. But the shalom is shaky again because Joab. Look at verse 24. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. See, to Joab, Abner going away in peace, that's not how things should be. It just feels wrong. And it shows here kind of this confrontation between general and king, between nephew and uncle, that peace is a difficult thing. It is an elusive, short-lived, tenuous thing in this fallen world. And you know what? You can understand why. Joab is understandably upset. He spent all this time. He's watched all these men die because of Abner's little rebellion. And of course, not to mention Asahel, Abner killed his brother. And here, he doesn't even bring up his personal feelings. He's just pointing to the fruit of the tree, right? He says, Abner is not a good guy. He's untrustworthy. And the implication here as he brings this all up to David and accuses him is, David, you are being a fool. He doesn't go out and say that to the king, but he's saying, you're being foolish. Don't you know that Abner's not a good guy and you're just going to let him walk out in peace? See, here's the lesson of this first point. What this incident is showing us is that the things that make for peace will always seem a little foolish to some in this fallen world. Maybe most even. Sure, the text doesn't give us any indication that Abner is about to double-cross David, that there's some sort of trick going on here. In fact, it's the opposite. The text so far has pretty much confirmed that Abner really is changing, that he really is switching sides. He's done with Ishbosheth. This is good for Israel. This is good for David. But again, the text tells us this from the perspective of Joab. And can we put ourselves in Joab's sandals for a moment? Abner killed his brother. He killed his brother. Abner started this war. Everything Abner's done so far has told us that he can't be trusted. What I'm saying is, Joab has a point. Like we could talk about peace all we want. Oh, it's good to pursue peace. Seek the things that make for peace. The Bible does say that. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't. But all of us understand that there are reasons, that there are real things that make peace hard. And it might not start with us. You know, I remember um, one time years ago, I, I had some problem, and I was sharing with some of my Christian friends, some of my brothers and sisters, and I don't know, I was just talking about it. And then my one friend, she goes, here's my advice. Don't worry and be happy. Don't worry, be happy. I love that Bible verse. Um, and she gave me this smile when she said it. And it just filled me with this rage. I got to be honest. I felt like I was hiking or something. <laughs> like, am I hiking right now? Um, but it just filled me with, I didn't yell at her or anything. Don't worry. Um, I wasn't a pastor yet either, by the way. Um, but I was truly angry inside because I felt at the time that her advice, her counsel was insultingly trite. If I could be happy, I would. If I didn't have to worry, then I would stop. But I have this actual problem. How does what you're saying help me at all? How does that solve my actual issue in the real world? It's like you're not hearing what I'm saying. Now, to be fair, I was thinking about this. 
I don't even remember what the problem was. So maybe she did have a point. Maybe it wasn't a big deal. But here's the thing. You all know how it is. And this is where we start. You all know how it is. You have problems, real problems. There are real issues that you're struggling with, maybe inside, the things that you wrestle with in your own mind, the things that keep you tossing and turning. I mean, I know what's going on with people. Your kid isn't really fitting in with his or her peers. You're struggling financially. Maybe you're worried about what to do with aging parents. Maybe you have issues with people, actual conflict. There are people in your life that you dread seeing, like I talked about. And then, of course, there's the issues of the world that we're bombarded with, that you hear about all the time. Sometimes we despair of life itself and we wonder, okay, we're going to come to church and the pastor's going to talk about, hey, just trust God. I want to trust God. I don't want to stress. I want to have peace. And yet, Abner killed my brother. And yet, this person did that. And yet, this problem that I have is still there. And again, I'm not disparaging the Bible. The Bible does say, do not be anxious about anything. But what we see in passages like 2 Samuel 3 is that the Bible is not trite. It challenges us at the deepest levels of who we are. It presents to us people who are wrestling with real issues that are significant. It never says that it's easy to have peace. See, if you feel... Sometimes, like, to be a Christian means you got to pretend that everything's all good. You're not alone. If you feel like it's foolish to do that, you're definitely not alone. Because that's how Joab feels exactly. But see, the Bible doesn't call us to pretend. And this leads to the second point. Joab does have an argument. Real problems do shake up peace. But that doesn't mean that we should give up on peace. The second point, okay, peace is shaky because we live in a fallen world. Second point, what breaks peace? What shakes peace, but what breaks peace? There are reasons. There are real reasons why life is hard, why you are stressed, why you have issues with other people. It might not even be your fault per se. Peace is a difficult thing. It's an elusive thing, a short-lived thing, a tenuous thing in this fallen world. The Abners in our lives ensure that. And yet, how do you respond? That's the second question, verse 26. Because what we see here is when Joab came out from David's presence, you can stop there for a moment, freeze the frame. Joab feels a certain way about this. He's not happy. But what does he do? What does he do? He leaves the tent or wherever David is, and what? And this is the crucial moment for Joab. What is he going to do? There is this fragile peace. David has made sure of that. Abner has gone in peace, but will this peace last? You heard what happens earlier, but hear it again, and pay attention to how this goes down. Look at verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. Right away, he calls Abner back, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother, a stomach for a stomach. And I mean, I don't know how you take this, but every time I've read this growing up or even recently, I'm not always sure what to think because I can understand where Joab is coming from. 
And Abner's not a good guy. You know, I remember hearing a friend of mine say once, and he's a godly person, um, but he said, honestly, if someone ever hurt one of my kids, I'd probably want to kill that person. And I could understand. The question wasn't so much, can I understand that? Do I feel that? Because I could, and I can't even more now that I have my own kids. I get the sentiment. You get it, right? You understand, but that's not the question. The question isn't, can you understand what Joab did? The question is, is it right? Is it good? Now, Leviticus 24, probably your favorite passage in the Bible, right? But Leviticus 24, even though it might not be very familiar to you offhand, you probably heard a part of it more often than you realized. Leviticus 24, starting in verse 17, it says this. Let me throw a wrench into it for you. Leviticus 24, 17, it says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is what is called the lex talionis, that's Latin, but it means the law of retaliation. And we might need to talk about this a little bit because if you know your Old Testament at all, you might be tempted to believe that Joab not only has a point, but that he's justified in what he does right here. Joab, sure, it's distasteful. Sure, it's a little messed up. But the Bible does say an eye for an eye. Why not a stomach for a stomach? But see, we have to understand the Lex Talionis' purpose. In context, the Lex Talionis is about justice, not revenge. It's about proportionate punishment, that people get what they actually deserve, no more and no less. It's not a license for vengeance. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's not a contradiction. Justice is important. And maybe there was a place for Abner to pay for what he did in some way, but it was for sure not in Hebron. Let me explain. In the law, in the Old Testament, certain cities in Israel were designated as cities of refuge. Okay, you might not know about this, but cities of refuge, there were certain cities marked out for this. And what cities of refuge were, they were places where you could go if you had killed someone unintentionally or by accident without premeditated intent. Okay, manslaughter, that's what we call it nowadays. If you are someone who killed someone and you know that people are after you personally for what you did, you could run to a city of refuge and under the law of God, you would be safe from retaliation. And Hebron, guess what? Joshua 21, 13 was a city of refuge. Justice is important, okay, understand. But justice is about doing what's right. And what we're seeing here is someone, Joab, who doesn't care about what's right right now or what's good right now. He only cares about getting even, and that is not right. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, hear this, Romans 12, verse 17. Paul said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And listen to this. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because the temptation for us is when we are treated evilly, we respond in kind. When someone else shakes the peace, we run in and we just break that thing. See, look, it might be understandable. You could even argue it's only fair what Joab did, but is it good? No, it's not. And David gets it, verse 28. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. See, how David thinks about things is different. Joab was focused on who? He was focused on Abner. What Abner did, who Abner is, David is focused on who? The Lord. Keep reading verse 29. We'll pick up with that later. But verse 29, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Now, this seems a little harsh, but what David is doing is he's asking the Lord to pay back Joab to deal with it for the evil that he's done. In other words, he's asking God to make everything right. But he understands that what Joab did is wrong. Verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. There are reasons. If you look at verse 30, it says, because, right, because he did this. There are reasons why Abner didn't deserve peace, reasons why Abner contributed to the shakiness of peace. But at the end of the day, the one who delivers the death blow to peace in this situation is Joab. Someone once said, an eye for an eye, and makes the entire world blind. Doesn't mean that an eye for an eye is wrong. But what does it lead to? You know, some of you guys, someone was telling me, I forget who it was, that they saw the new West Side Story remake. Um, I'd never seen it. I'd never seen the old one either. But I have read Romeo and Juliet, and it's basically a musical ripoff of that story. Um, But if you don't know, okay, and I I know this because I... um, found a site called wikipedia.com. There are two gangs, the Sharks and the Jets. Okay, you don't have to remember all these details. The Sharks and the Jets. The leader of the Jets is Riff. The leader of the Sharks is Bernardo. And Riff's best friend is Tony. Bernardo's sister is Maria. And they fall in love. Okay, people super close to the leaders of these gangs. They fall in this forbidden love. Now, Okay, you don't have to remember these names again, but all you have to know is that these gangs hate each other, and the hatred between these two gangs leads to Bernardo killing Riff in a fight, and then Tony killing Bernardo in retaliation for killing his friend, and then eventually Tony getting shot, and he dies in Maria's arms. This violence just keeps going back and forth, retaliation, revenge, vengeance, and after Tony dies, Tony who wasn't really part of it, Tony who loved Maria, his friends are going to get even more vengeance. They're going to kill even more people for Tony's death. But Maria stops it at the end by confronting everybody. And she says that it wasn't one person who killed Tony. It was all of them, sharks and jets. It was even his friends. It was their ongoing conflict that led to so many senseless deaths back and forth. See, the thing is, it might be understandable. You could even argue it's only fair what the sharks did what the Jets did, but it's not good. Why? Because of where it leads. 
Can I ask you a hard question? Even if you say no, I'm still going to ask it. Can I ask you a hard question? Are you the kind of person who makes things worse? Do you make things worse? Do you escalate situations? Maybe you don't start a lot of conflicts. Maybe you aren't someone who starts things, but do you keep them going? Maybe you're the kind of person who always has reasons why you're upset, and when you tell me about it, they are legit reasons. I understand. But do you feed the bitterness in your heart? Do you pour gasoline on every fire? Or how about this? Do you sin in response to stress? God calls us, Romans 14, to pursue the things that make for peace, to pursue how things should be. And that means that no matter how justified we might feel, we're never justified in sin because sin, as one theologian said, is the vandalization of shalom. Sin and shalom, they are opposites. Peace-breaking, we see it in Joab. There are reasons and yet he ends up being cursed. Peace breaking, it'll always come back to bite you. And you might agree, okay? Asked you a hard question. Maybe you say, I am that kind of person. You agree, and you say, Jesse, though even though I agree with what you said, still, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be this way. It's just they've hurt me so much. It's just they keep provoking me. It's just I keep turning on the news, and there's another thing. My problems are more than I can bear. This leads to the third and final point. What makes peace? There is good news in this text, if we have eyes to see. What makes peace? Or rather, who makes peace? See, the camera shifts from Joab and Abner to David, finally. How is David going to deal with this? How is our main character, so to speak, going to deal with this mess? He has finally achieved peace, and it's lasted for, I don't know, like one hour, two hours, and then Joab, your right-hand guy, just goes and ruins it. I mean, let's say you deal with Joab harshly. What's that going to do to Judah, your people? Are they going to say, like, oh, you're going to choose Abner over Joab? We're out of here. Let's say you don't do anything. What are the Israelites, what are the Benjamites going to say? You just murdered their general and their leader who tried to broker peace. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Verse 31, this is what David does. And David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. Okay, not maybe the strongest start, but okay. Okay, we're okay with it. I mean, basically his plan, if you didn't notice, is he's going to get the guy who murdered Abner, he's going to get him to change his clothes into sackcloth and pretend to be sad about it. Okay, I want you to go out there, Joab, and just cry for Abner, and I'll be out there too. Verse 32, they bury Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. So he starts crying, and all the people start following him. And then look at this. This is key, verse 33. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And what he's saying here is, he's not saying Abner was some great guy. Let's get that right, because he wasn't. But he's saying that Abner still deserved better. He wasn't killed with eyes open, so to speak. He was tricked. He wasn't able to fight for his life. It was a wicked way to die. And in doing this, in mourning there, and just saying, you have fallen as if before the wicked, what is David doing? He's admitting fault in some way. 
He's implicating himself. Keep reading verse 33 and pay attention to the repetition of certain words. Listen to this. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Okay, what is repeated there over and over and kind of in over the top way? All the people, the king. All the people, the king. Where are all the people focused? Are they focused on Abner, on Joab? No, they're focused on what the king is doing. Who are they following? Whose lead are they looking to? All the people are following the king. And here's what's interesting. This is the first time in First and Second Samuel, the first real time that David is called simply just the king. I mean, he was anointed king like way back in the day, but it's here that he is called the king. And what the text is doing is it's highlighting not just who he is, David. We know David, but it's highlighting what he is, that he is being the king right here. And this is key because think about what's happening. This could have been disaster. It honestly should have been disaster. The plan shouldn't have worked. And yet the king leads the people. See, what the text is showing us is the power of the king to make peace. As long as the people look to him and follow him and trust him, as long as he is able to lead rightly, it can be all right. And I started by talking about Gene and Finney. Gene knocked Finney off balance on the tree branch And in an instant, everything changed, right, for Finney, for their relationship. But the reality was Gene had been thinking about this for a long time. Sorry, let me, uh, there you go. Gene had been thinking about this for a long time. Okay, he had been thinking about Finney for a long time. Not the tree branch, but his competition with Finney, his obsession with Finney, how much better Finney was, how inferior he felt. And he fed his jealousy. And his envy until it inevitably spilled out into his actions. Look, he didn't intend to hurt Phineas, but he did want to mess him up a little bit. And the moment was months in the making. And see, we see the same thing in Joab. If your focus is on the reasons why you are angry, why you are justified, why you're anxious, why you're bitter, It's almost impossible to get over it. You'll constantly justify yourself. I mean, there were easier. Okay, think about this. There were easier, way less dangerous ways than to meet the seasoned warrior Abner one-on-one isolated. There were easier ways to kill him if you wanted to kill him. You could have brought him before a judge and people would have probably ruled in your favor to a certain extent. You didn't have to get right in front of him and stick a knife or whatever it was right in his stomach. It was dangerous. It was risky. But it's exactly what he wanted to do because it was tit for tat. It's not hard to imagine that he had been playing that scene in his head since the war began. The truth is, this moment was probably months in the making and it became inevitable. 
And when you think about all the reasons why you can't forgive, when you turn over and over in your mind all the bad things she's done, when you feed your anger, resentment, jealousy, envy, whatever it is, you'll move further and further away from peace. But what if, and this is what the text is pointing us to, what if you could focus elsewhere? What if you took your cues from something or rather someone else? Do you see David? Do you see the king? He weeps for his enemy. He mourns for a man who sat back as Saul tried to spear him through also. And the people noticed this. Now, one more thing, okay? Because as we started this, I said, at his best, David points us to Jesus in both ways. Right? He, he shows us, he gives us insight into who Jesus is. But at his worst, he also points us to Jesus and our need for him. And here, I just want to point this out. A lot of people are very critical of David at the end of this chapter. They look at David. The cycle uh, of violence ends with him, sort of. But still, they feel like he didn't deal with Joab. Joab, he gets off easy. He should have done something. He should have removed him from his position of power. He should have executed him in the name of justice. He should have done this or done that. He just lets Joab basically get away with it. And then look at verse 38. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Kind of not the greatest man. Verse 39, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, that's his sister, by the way, are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. The word translated gentle there can also mean weak. And I was reading one commentary. One scholar was eviscerating David saying, yeah, you were too weak to do what needed to be done. David should have made an example of Joab for breaking the peace or trying to break the peace. He should have met Joab's severity with more severity. But my question is, if he had done that, if he had done that, would that have led to the peace that he actually achieved? I actually think David knows that what he did wasn't perfect. It's why he calls himself weak. It's why he says at the end, the Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. At the end of the day, he's putting it in God's hands. And he says it generally. Who is the evildoer? It could be any of them. And this is the perfect place to end up because David, even though he's the king, even though he can achieve a modicum of peace, even he cannot achieve perfect peace. He can't tie up every loose end. Now turn with me to Matthew 14. We'll go here and then we'll close this. Matthew 14. First book in the New Testament. Matthew, the first of the gospels that we have in the New Testament in our canonical order. Each of the gospel accounts highlights something different about Jesus. Basically tells the same story about who he is, what he did. But each one highlights a different aspect, a little bit more And what Matthew highlights is that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. He's the king of everything. Now listen to Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately he, as Jesus, made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Listen, there are always reasons. It's tempting to want to focus on the wind and the waves. The Bible isn't saying they don't exist. It's tempting to want to focus on the wrong things done to us, the issues in the world, the struggles of our own hearts. I'm not saying the Bible's not saying ignore those things, sweep them under the rug. No, but what I am saying and what the text is saying, what the word of God is saying is that when Peter, understand this, when Peter was looking at Jesus, he could walk on water. And that's it. You look at all these people. It's, it's almost like it doesn't make sense, and yet they exist. Corey Ten Boom. She could forgive the Nazi guard in the concentration camp her sister died in. Why? Because Jesus forgave her. She was focused on the king and not on him and not on her own issues. The martyr Stephen, he cried out when he was being crushed to death by stones, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Why? Because he was focused on the king and being with him soon. Johnny Erickson Tata, she rejoices even though she's paralyzed. Think about how terrible that is. Even though she got diagnosed with cancer recently, not because she can walk again or because the cancer isn't a big deal, but because of Jesus, the king. See, what the Bible is saying is that in the king, you can have peace, beloved. Not because there aren't problems in the world, not because there aren't terrible people, not because it's easy to have it, but because of Jesus. Oh, we have little faith. What did Jesus say? John sixteen thirty three. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. They, they're not mutually exclusive, but he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. We'll close here. Gene, he feels so guilty about what happened. He didn't do it on purpose. I mean, he did sort of, but he didn't mean to hurt Phineas. He didn't want to cripple him. That wasn't his intention. Phineas returns to school after being in the hospital, and it's really devastating to see him now. He can't even walk, really. He used to break school records, and now he's struggling to get around. But he tries to be cheery. He refuses to believe, even for an instant, that there was any animosity, any, any uh, intention for Gene to hurt him or to shake the branch. After all, they're best friends. Best friends don't do that. And the sad thing is, you come to realize that it's just a bunch of denial for Phineas. He can't handle it. 
He even starts to deny that World War II is a real thing. People just can't be that way. He doesn't want to believe the bad things in life until one night all their friends get together. And one of Gene and Finney's friends, he suspects that Gene kind of had some feelings of jealousy for Phineas. He just suspects that maybe there was more going on and he confronts Gene in front of everybody. He says, did you shake the branch? Did you, do, did you push Finney? Did you do something to make Finney get hurt? And he accuses him and the case starts building against Gene. But Finney just doesn't want to hear, he can't hear it. And he runs out of the room. But because he, because he can't walk that well, he ends up falling down the stairs and he breaks his leg again. And the next day, Gene goes to see Finney in the hospital and he says, he just says, you know, look, it is my fault. And he confesses the jealousy of his heart and he asks for forgiveness. He didn't want this to happen. It wasn't hatred, but it was weakness. And Finney, for the first time, accepts what Gene says and he forgives him. And for the first time in the entire book, really, though the world is at war and they're at this nice boarding school, for the first time, Gene is truly at peace peace with Finney, peace with his own insecurity, a peace that is separate from all the bad things. And it came just in time because Finney actually ends up dying in surgery for his leg. So you have to understand that the Bible doesn't shy away from the brutality of life at all. It speaks of sin and suffering, blood and guts, real problems, revenge, hatred, all the things that vandalize shalom. And the Bible doesn't offer trite answers. No, rather it tells us instead of the king who stepped into our war zone, the prince of peace who walked among us, who was betrayed and tortured and crucified and who drank the cup of the wrath of God for our sin. For it is true, the Lord does repay the evildoer, but Jesus stepped into our place Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, died on a cross, suffered violence, bore the weight of sin so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus came to make peace by his own blood. And Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive. We can look to him and we must if you want to have peace in this world because the problems are not going to stop. In this world, you will have tribulation. We look to him. And we believe what he said, that he will make all things new, that he will restore shalom, starting with you, Christian, if you trust him. He will judge the living and the dead so you can leave it to him, Christian. He will work all things out for good so you can bring your problems to him. You can trust him. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. You can trust him. It's in him that you can have peace. So the question isn't, am I going to have problems? The question isn't, what am I going to do about this? The question really is just, where are you going to look? Who are you going to look to? Will you bow your heads with me? As the old hymn goes, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Father, we know from your word that there is a peace that transcends understanding. God, we know from your word that there is a peace that we can have that this world and all of its problems cannot touch. 
God, we know that there is in Christ a way for us to put aside our worries and fears and doubts. That there is a way for us to forgive those who have hurt us. That there is a way for us to trust you with our lives. And it starts with us. It starts with you. It starts with what Jesus did to make peace between us. God, I pray for those in this room who don't have peace. God, I pray that they would find the peace that they are searching for in Christ. God, I pray that we would set aside all the things that hinder us, that we would repent of our sins, that we would trust in nothing else. And God, I pray that we would leave this place today filled with a peace that we've never had for your glory, for the King's glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.